What's going on, everybody? We've got episode number nine of the Generation Fit Podcast today. We're going to be going over eight reasons you're not growing in the gym. So I think we could talk about this forever. I think we could have a hundred reasons you're not growing in the gym and probably another hundred reasons of why we haven't grown in the gym ourselves at certain points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a million different reasons why you're probably not getting the res- results that you've been seeing. Uh, I'm a great example of this because I have basically done about four or five years of not enough work or whether I'm not sleeping well because I'm going out and drinking during my college years, whatever it may be, I don't want you to continue making these reasons. And we're going to explain further why these are the reasons you're not growing in the gym. Yeah, exactly. These are going to be the biggest eight. So this is kind of the conglomerate of all of our experience individually, all of our clients experience and from everyone else's experience that we've personally learned from as well. Before we jump into the episode, I just want to let everyone know to go to www.thegenerationfit.com. We got tons of free resources, guides, regardless of your fitness goal. We've got it there. Also, you will get 10% off all training packages if you are a viewer of the podcast. All you have to do is let us know and you will get that 10% off. All right, so let's get into it. The first reason why you're not growing in the gym is because you're not eating enough calories. So in, in this camp, most people come to me and will say, hey, I'm going to the gym three to four times a week. I'm hitting it hard. I'm doing everything right. So they say, and they're still not growing. And the first question as a coach would be, okay, well, let's say your training is on point. Let's say your sleep's on point. Okay. How much are you eating? And they're like, oh, well, I don't want to get too fat. And then you break it down further. Next thing you know, they're definitely not eating enough calories. If anything, they're under eating or eating at maintenance. And it's not to say that you can't grow muscle, but it is certainly not the rate that you want to be gaining. And it's not the scientific amount that you should be gaining because you're too scared to put on that little extra mass. But yes, you're going to put on fat and muscle together. It is a proven fact by science. Just, But you want to make sure that you're putting the enough resources from calories to then put on more mass because you can't just magically a lot more muscle without the raw material of calories. Yeah, I feel like in all of these podcasts, every single mistake or myth is just like a direct attack on things I've done and learned the hard (laughs) way. But this is like, I think that this is one of the biggest ones. So I've talked about before, especially in the last episode, how one of the biggest reasons I didn't grow was I was focusing on only the feel, not progressive overloading enough and whatnot. And now this is the other biggest thing I was doing in conjunction is that I was trying to main gain, as people say, and that works only for so long and then it's also not optimal, right? So, and especially didn't work for me. So for maybe even a year, I was eating around maintenance calories. I was probably underestimating and eating a little less while trying to grow. And like, sure, I made very slow, steady growth, but I wasn't growing nearly as much when I, now I don't recommend this either, but when I first started, I was coming out of playing soccer. I was burning a ridiculous amount of calories. I weighed 130 pounds. And I went up to like 160 pounds over the course of maybe like two to three months. Like it was ridiculous. I went from eating nothing to four to 5,000 calories a day. Mass gainers was, it was horrible. Like I was like almost throwing up like all the time because I was just trying to like force, I was force feeding myself. Now I don't recommend that. But of course there's the exception of newbie gains as well, but that's also the most I ever grew actually was just by eating at least on the upper end to cover my basis there in terms of amount of calories. So that even though I was, definitely did gain a lot of excess fat at least i was maximizing the amount of muscle i could be gaining based on all of the other training variables as well Mm -hmm. yeah so empirically you want to be right around two to three pounds a month and it's not going to be all muscle there will be some fat accumulated with it but that is the range where you're going to be putting on majority of muscle and mitigate the, the least amount of fat gain possible and if you go, let's say in this case, is if you go one pound or less a month, then you're definitely leaving some gains on the table for all your hard work. And if you're on the other side where you're going too fast, like four pounds a month or more, then it seems as if when you have multiple groups put together that they both get the same amount of muscle gain, but the group that over ate just got way yeah. more fat out of it. When it's it. on the much higher end, right? So yeah. like more into... Th- four to five pounds a month, something like that. Yeah, it's like four plus. Yeah, and of course, it's going to be variance with that in terms of just you as an individual, all your other training variables, right? Like if someone's not getting good sleep, not enough protein, then maybe that they would 
if they were gaining two pounds a month, maybe some of that would be fat. Whereas if someone else hones in on everything, then they're fine. They're good to go. Another example is just your genetics. Like maybe you're someone that's more predisposed to putting on more muscle or your beginning point, you just have no muscle on your frame. So you're able to eat a lot more, put on a lot more muscle. And then as you get to a point where you're much more advanced, I mean, we know this, that any competitive bodybuilder might be very happy with putting on three pounds of muscle and losing a pound of fat with an entire year of really hard work dedicating their entire lifestyle. So then that gets a little different where now maybe you're not trying to put on as much pounds per month, but you're still eating in a surplus <laughs> in that position as well. So um, I think a lot of people, a big question is how do we, I recomp or how do like that's kind of a new thing in the fitness industry or how do I lose fat and build muscle? And it's not that you can't lose fat and build muscle. It's just that it's not optimal. The whole thing here is this is eight reasons why you're not growing in the gym and it's definitely not optimal to be trying to have the main goal of building muscle while also having that big priority of trying to lose fat. It's mm -hmm. not to say you can't do it, but as you get more advanced as a trainee, then that's just going to come so much more difficult to the point where you're probably going to start to lose muscle on the cut, if anything, once you're very advanced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just, and also a little caveat here, understand that your metabolism adapts upwards as well. Yeah. So let's say the first two months you gained on point, let's say you gained six pounds. Now you're up six pounds. You're technically eating more. And your metabolism is burning more. So if you're at 3,000 calories to burn to bulk up, well, after month two or three, you're going to notice that your weight stagnated. Well, guess what? Your metabolism adapted upwards. You yeah. need to be eating more. So next thing you, know, you got to go up to 3,200. And let's say 3,000 was already hard enough for you. Well, guess what? You have to figure out a way to get 3,200 calories. And in this case, you're you're going to be full. Now you're going to be even fuller, more satiated. So it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable, but that's okay. That is something yeah. that we have to get through. And it's, trust me, it is hard. I currently eat 4,200 calories. And guess what? I started off at 38. I already am full at every meal. Yeah. It's got to happen. If the goal is to put on muscle, you don't just put on muscle randomly without raw material. Right, the stimulus is there from training. Now I need the raw material to actually be built onto my frame. It is uncomfortable to put on new yeah. raw mass. Well, because exactly, that's really well said. I think that when you're training, that's a stress that you're putting onto your body. Your body is also undergoing lots of other different stresses, and it also has lots of different physiological functions and mechanisms it needs to take care of every single day. So, building muscle and building strength is not close to being first as a priority in terms of what your body's uh, physiological responsibilities are. There's going to be other things like such as surviving <laughs> and being able to like just all these little things, right? They're far more important than to your body anyways and everything that's going on in there than building muscle and building strength. So you need to force that growth somehow and you're not going to be able to do that with too little calories because when you have that certain amount of calories, your body's not going to be prioritizing. Let's say that it takes 3,000 calories to maintain your body weight your body's not going to be taking those first 2,800 calories and doing much at all with it in terms of trying to help you put on size and adapt to a stimulus you're giving. It's going to take care of the other functions it needs to do first. So you need that surplus of calories to do something else with that, which is to actually undertake in muscle protein synthesis and everything else that's related to building muscle, basically, not to get into like the nitty gritty of it. Mm -hmm. Going into number two is not enough protein. Most people I, I've worked with and currently work with do not eat enough protein regardless yeah. of putting on muscle or losing fat. And for context, protein is responsible for multiple processes in the body, not just putting on muscle. For example, it is for regeneration of other tissues around the body, like your nails, your skin, your hair. Um, without that enough, you have to pull from your own body recycle it and reuse it in the body. So in this case, since muscle is expensive and you are creating new tissue after breaking it down in the body, you're going to have to use your own if you don't eat enough of it. So what we always recommend is that you clear what we call this positive nitrogen threshold. And in science, it's about 0.6 at the bare minimum of body weight. Okay. And then 0.8 is what we have noticed in science is that is the upper end where your body utilizes majority of all the intake and a little bit more. And that's where you get the one gram of pound per body weight to be on the safer end. Just yeah, I think actually the, the one gram was probably even before a lot of the studies came out like to be on yeah. the safer end because there's not as like I'm just researching it as much as possible. And there's really not a single study that actually shows anything above 0.8 grams of protein. 0.82 is the specific number actually 
per pound of body weight that gives a more beneficial result in terms of building more muscle. Like there's not a single study that really exists like that unless it's extremely contextual and you're completely under eating calories or you have a extreme genetic condition, but there's really not a study. I know Menno Hesselman, is that how you say his last name, yeah, right? Guy, yeah. And he has a great article on that. And I think it's one of the most viewed articles because he cites every single study going down mm-hmm. a list. And he's like, 0.82 is actually in the high end. 0.82 is to be safe. Now, the, where the one gram is to be safe is for people that aren't really honing in on what types of protein they're eating and they're not eating enough calories to begin with. Hence, the reason why number one on this list was not eating enough calories. Mm-hmm. So that's when you're not eating complete sources of protein, when you're not getting all the essential amino acids. Typically, that's people not eating animal proteins, people who are vegans, and then they're not getting those complete sources of protein. That's where there's going to be a bigger issue. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, it just in this case, you just got to make sure that you're getting 0.6 to 0.8. And we obviously recommend 0.8 um, because you want to get the most out of all your training and nutrition. But if not, at least 0.6. And currently my clients now are still struggling with this. And that's the one of the biggest things I put at the forefront is because once you get in that much amount of protein, then everything else seems to be a little bit easier. Yeah. Just for context, to be, eat that much protein, I, let's say right now I'm 190 pounds. Uh, to eat about 0.6 to 0.8, I actually shoot for about 150 at the low end. 150 grams of protein to 160 grams. That is, it, just in meat, that's, about, that's two pounds of meat a day. So to actually eat that much food planned is pretty tough. So if you go yeah. out to eat, you have to ask for double meat. Um, if you don't plan out your day, then you have to really consolidate all of it into like two big meals. So to eat enough protein does to require some sort of planning. Without it, you are going to fall short of your muscle gaining goals. So to make sure that you do plan prior to your day how much you need to eat for the protein. And what also that does, the one gram per pound, yeah. actually makes you fuller. That's what it is. So, Yeah, so that's a, another benefit of it, why you might want to eat one gram per pound, especially yeah. if you're cutting, which would help a little bit more just for the satiating effect. Yeah, that's where, that's where like you actually can eat even you know, slightly more. But that's yeah. exactly the point is after 0.82, it doesn't seem to be, at least at a physiological level, that there's any other benefit except for that you are mostly fuller after eating it exactly and i think that for people who like you mentioned before lots of clients of ours they're not eating close to enough protein when they come to us and it's a struggle to get them to that point just like how we talked about in our achieving your 2023 goals episode you can't set a huge goal and then not have like the the micro goals on the week to week to get there because if you're someone that you need to eat 150 grams of protein a day and you're eating 40 grams there's lots of people like that actually it's Hard to believe for us, but I mean, we started at that point too. Um, if you're one of those people, you're not just going to go from eating 40 grams of protein to 150 grams of protein per day. It might be, hey, in week one, try and add a serving consistently throughout the week so that instead of eating 50 grams every day for a week, you're now eating 60 grams every day for a week. And then trying to slowly and steadily add on from there because otherwise you're just going to completely put your normal lifestyle out of whack your brain's going to be all confused with what you're doing and you're not going to be able to adhere to it so there has to be if you're someone on the low very low end a gradual implementation of more protein to get to that point Mm -hmm. yeah just having it to be convenient to have or consume it is one of the best things so especially we work with mostly office workers uh we tell them to have in their cubicle if you still have one to (laughs) to have a either whether it be protein shake whether it be uh, already prepped meal, which is the priority, um, or a protein bars or meat sticks or bur- of or grass-fed jerky, whatever it may be, just that it's convenient to have protein around. So it does require some sort of planning. But in the long run, you'll get your protein target a lot easier when you do have those things readily available. Yep. All right, so let's get into number three then. I think we covered most of our bases on number two. It's not training hard enough or on the flip end, training too hard. So I've taken part in both of these actually uh i don't know which one is a worse problem to have they're they bo- kind of both are <laughs> what do you think we have a debate here ah uh, man i i think so for our for the context of people who we work with is yeah. definitely not trading hard enough yeah so the people we work That's with true. is gen pop they, they already have don't have enough time don't have enough time they're not prioritizing this as like their major part of their life, but they're definitely just making time enough for the gym. That's the not training hard enough. And then the training too hard context are the people who are like, who are like this is their priority. Like, yeah. This is at the forefront. They think about their workouts at mm-hmm. work. 
Like that. Well, I think in terms of how it feels, it's probably worse to train harder because one, you could get sick, <laughs> right? And then yeah. two, you can be pissed off because you're doing everything you can and your body's not growing because you're training too much. So I actually would prefer the not the training too little because then I could just add more volume. Yeah. So coming from a coaching perspective, yeah. I would think that is better because to dial somebody's ego back is harder than somebody who is already consistently going to the gym and then you just have to go sit there, watch them be one more rep. Yeah. One more rep. One more rep. And continue until they literally burn their yeah. muscle off. Have you ever seen um that clip on uh on Rogan, who's that guy's name's like is it C T Fletcher is his name, right? Yeah. He's the bench press guy. Yep. And he was like, Fuck overtraining. He's like, That's bullshit. And Joe Rogan was like, Have you ever heard of rhabdomyolosis? And he was like, No, fuck rhabdomyolosis, whatever it is. He's like, That's bullshit. He like didn't know what to say. And Rogan's like, Yeah, lots of people die from it every year, but that's okay. <laughs> like one of my clients pretty... have it. <laughs> oh, they do have it, one of your clients? Yeah. Uh, yeah, he had it uh a couple months back and actually he's still uh he's still he's my current client now, but I think three years ago he had it and it has caused kidney issues. But that's because it's an autoimmune disorder essentially, right? Like that is spurred from He probably already had predisposing kidney issues. Okay. And then, and then he went like it's a like six months without training and then went balls to the wall, like yeah. on his own. Mm-hmm. And then he went to the he went to the hospital after he saw some blood in his urine and, it was like, and he was like, Yeah, you have some rhabdo. Yeah. And I was like, ooh. Thankfully, man. I didn't get that. I got three, and I got uh, three fevers over 103 degrees um, when I first started training, like after six months, because I was like, oh, just, I got trained more. Yeah. That's, and, and yeah, that's, the, well, that's why I'm saying now is either side of the spectrum is bad. And to give you, con- to give you like a good idea of what is good, yeah. Uh, not training hard enough side. So that's a side where you're, when you're finishing a set, that if I as a coach asked you how many more reps you had left, that you could say, eh, 10. I'm or you say two and you have no idea how many you really have. Exactly. Yeah. So, or, or you say two and you have no idea how many more you do have left. I'm going to sit there and be like, okay, keep going until you literally can't yeah. do another perfect rep. That's actually when you actually are training hard enough. Objectively as a coach, what I'm actually looking for is either breakdown of technique to a certain extent, obviously, if it's a squat, I'm not going to have you break down your technique. But let's say it's like a like a bicep curl and you start bringing your arm forward, then yes, I can easily just be like, yeah. all right, you're done. But I'm actually watching for the, the rep. I usually keep every exercise rep at a certain tempo. And if it breaks tempo by slowing down, your technique is still good. That's a good sign of you are tr- starting to get to that range. Approach failure. You're approaching the... Uh, the failure range of like one to three reps in the yeah. tank. Well, I remember one time at uh, the former gym you used to work at, there was a guy, it was it was Danny, I believe, right? And he yeah. was doing leg press and you brought me over there and you're like, all right, I want to see like if you estimate the same amount of reps he still has. And you said, Danny, like go to the point where you think you have like one more. And as when he stopped, you're like, no, you have six more. And you made him do six more. Yep. And he did those six more. And you're like, yeah, you now you maybe have one more. <laughs> so yeah, people also have the issue where they're underestimating how many reps in proximity to failure they actually have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's this is one of the biggest ones. I'd rather you be on this side than the other, uh, because yeah. I, I can teach you to I can teach you what it feels like to get uncomfortable and to get to that point where failure is imminent. What's hard on the other end now is the people that either train too hard where they're every exercise they go to failure they're grunting in the gym over a bicep curl uh they are doing so much volume so they're doing the the schwarzenegger two a day two a days hitting each body part four times a week i wish i could do that and recover from it or think they recover from it <laughs> but realistically is they injure themselves or they have slight mm-hmm. slight aches and pains and they go in this case like they go to the hospital they see what's going on and also if you can recover from it it means you weren't training hard enough at all in either of those sessions yeah, so yeah. It, it, and that's why there's a caveat to what you actually should be doing. And in this case is I'd rather you be on the not training hard enough because I can teach you how to train harder because you're probably going to be fo- so focused on technique. Yeah. And then I can just be like, push, 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 push. Yeah, exactly. There's I don't want to get like too sciencey, but obviously, you know, the stimulus recovery adaptation uh, curve. So the SRA curve, basically all that means is that your body, you're providing a stimulus. Let's say that you go in, you do bicep curls, you're providing a stimulus to your biceps, and then your biceps are going to recover. So they're going to engage in physiological processes. Maybe they're going to grow or try to get stronger, basically to lift more the next week or to adapt to the stimulus you provided the week before. And then 
that's where the that adaptation comes in. You go in the next week and you're able to do it a little easier or for more reps or you can up the weight or whatnot. The only problem is is that if you do too much, if you hammer your biceps like 25 sets in that one day, that recovery might be impeded. And then because that recovery is impeded, you can't fully recover to get back to baseline where you were providing that stimulus before, and now you can't even adapt. And if you do that too much, you're now at there's the possibility and it's been seen in trainees that are doing like well over like 25 sets per week where they're they actually do the opposite of adapting and they atrophy or lose strength as a result so that's on the very high end but some people are mistaken and do do that because their favorite bodybuilder does it or something Mm -hmm. yeah so something a practical takeaway is start uh, every body part start around 10 sets especially for upper body about 10 sets and then Solidify your technique. Make sure it's the same at every rep. And then at the end of each set, record yourself and then think to yourself, how many more could I have actually done? And then if you say to yourself, honestly, that you had more than three or four left, I urge you to go to like what feels like one or two left. And if you actually look at the video, you actually see your rep start slowing down and you're going to try to keep your composure to keep everything in line yeah. while you're lifting. So if you're bicep curling, try not to swing your arm forward towards the end, which is very hard to do. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying if it breaks down, then you then stop right there. But most people will stop early thinking to themselves that they push themselves hard enough when realistically you did not. Yeah, exactly. So that's where it's almost like an overtraining fad we have in the fitness industry now because that's what all the videos are about. Like, oh, are you overtraining? And then I think a lot of people see that in the mainstream and use that as an excuse to not train as hard and just don't do that. Like, that's bullshit. Just please train hard and push yourself. Like, here's the thing that, in ter- like we say, as coaches, we prefer you to be on the end where you're under training because we could teach you to progressively train more and allocate more overall load and intensity to your training. But in terms of, like, how you should, like, I would – I would think that is best to live your life in general in terms of trying to accomplish your goals is to do it more on the extreme end than the lower end because then you're never going to get anywhere anyways. (laughs) You know, like if you're just doing too little all the time, you're never going to realize what it's like to be close to that goal. Obviously, there's such thing as overtraining and then actually maybe we get overreaching a little bit if you want to get into that because it's a little bit different in the sense of like, if you guys listening at home, you might hear the two words overreaching or phrases overreaching, overtraining. Overreaching is basically the precursor to overtraining in the sense that you're doing so much volume to the point that if you train the same amount of volume or more the next week, you wouldn't be able to recover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's, there's different types of uh, overreaching. There's functional and non-functional, basically. Yeah. Functional means that you are taking yourself to a place where you've never been in terms of stimulus and recovery. Yeah. and then you adapt past that, but you do need to, what we call a deload or it takes some time time to let the fatigue drop off. Yeah. And then you have non-functional overreaching, which is you push yourself too far, too hard, even though you did train pretty hard, pretty, pretty well, but your body's not recovering and adapting in the right way. And you will know after a good training block, if you are training or overreaching a certain, functionally or non-functionally, uh, once you retest or perform the same movement again after that deload or time off yeah so basically just push yourself and learn your body and adapt and auto regulate based on how your body responds in very simple terms all right so let's get into the next one this is going to be too many isolation movements and the prioritization of isolation movements over compound movements so hey this is another attack on me right here that i engaged in a lot like i just thought it was frank zane like half my lifting career which is hasn't been that long but i was just only focusing on the stimulus to the muscle feeling every little bit, micromanaging every tiny movement my body made. And as a result, I didn't grow nearly as much. When I first started lifting, my numbers went up faster than ever. Some of them that are almost comparable to what they are now because I'm getting back to that point. And my and as a result, I was also just growing more. My muscles were hypertrophying more because even though my form wasn't nearly as good as it was now, I was aiming to progressive overload on all of the compound movements that I was engaging in, which I was prioritizing over the isolation movements. So even though I wasn't feeling it as much, I wasn't feeling my chest as much on a barbell press. I might have not been feeling my quads as much on a squat as I would on a hack squat machine going through a full range of motion. Guess what? I was able to load those exercises much more and push myself week in and week out. And that's where I was able to grow the most. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As coaches, what we do is we go practical first. And what we tell our clients is we want you to solidify your compound movements first because it, 
can one hit more body parts. That's the reason why it's the name. It's more efficient based on the time you have. Yeah. yeah, it's more efficient for the time that you have, and it also has the more raw stimulus overall. So think to yourself, how much can you actually bench versus just doing a chest fly? Mm-hmm. Right. So you're able to produce a lot more force overall because you're using multiple body parts and muscle groups to able to force produce force on that bench press. Whereas if you do a chest fly isolation, most of you doing it correctly, you'll probably do anywhere between like 70 to 100 pounds, whereas you can probably load a bench press. I mean, as you can see, to like 200, 300, 400 pounds, you're, I guarantee you'll have a bigger stimulus in the chest, even though you don't say you feel it. But the overall magnitude of the stimulus is way more in the compound exercise. So what we do is we prioritize compounds first, and then we start adding in isolations. When you think it's either a lagging body part or you want to focus on that body part, or we put that isolation to the forefront when you need to feel a certain muscle first into going into a lift. But as that said, compounds first, build the base, then you can do your isolations. Unless you want to focus on a specific body part then compounds, then isolations. Yeah, there's um, something on the internet, and they're very popular on a lot of YouTube videos and stuff. People cite the EMG studies, electromyographic studies, which basically get a gauge on how much the muscle is being stimulated, how much the peak contraction actually is in that muscle. And the only problem with that is, let's say that you're doing a chest fly with two pounds, <laughs> nothing, right? You can technically have a higher peak contraction that shows up in the EMG study with that than you would with a bench press of 300 pounds. Mm-hmm. So there's context to that because obviously what is going to grow more? I don't think it's debatable that you're going to grow more doing a 300 pound bench press for three reps than a fly with two pounds, but feeling your pack more. But that's the context that people need to understand and they don't, they think, oh, this stimulates the muscle more. That means if I'm feeling it more, it's going to grow more. That's not necessarily true. Now, it's also the flip end that people make the mistake where they just don't feel the muscle at all and they just ego lift, and then that's a problem. But yes. that's there's two sides of both coins, and really it's just like split down the middle. You need to, It's somewhere in the middle. Yeah, do the compound movements first. See, yeah. what you see if your technique is good. See what your body looks like after solidifying the technique and, and progressing with those movements. And after you've seen a couple months to maybe a year of progression, then you can be like, okay, I need to do – xyz isolations because i don't feel this muscle or that muscle more or i want to bring up this muscle yeah exactly and even when you want to bring up individual muscles it doesn't mean to get rid of your compounds altogether still probably allocate about two-thirds of your volume to the compounds and then fill in the rest of the puzzle with the piece of that isolation exercise or two yeah exactly yeah Um, so another big one is just and this kind of flows right into the next one is bad technique slash ego lifting so that's on the flip end where people are lifting way too much and not feeling the muscle at all. And that's going to be when you're lifting way too much because for what I mean, I've seen you guys probably seen a billion videos where people think they're awesome online, but they're not doing any of the lifts properly whatsoever. They probably don't look that good. And if they do, they either have really good genetics or they're on some compound or whatever. But it's um, have you ever seen the video of the guy? He was like that. He's a really big, bald dude, and he has, he's doing like the Meadows row or whatever. But as he's lifting it like three inches off the ground, he has like twenty forty five stacking. Like this was like a real video. Oh, I mean, you want me to pull it up there's, and there's show some, you? Yeah, you can yeah. pull it up. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's unbelievable. It's like it, it, there's plenty of examples where you where you see at the gym they do either quarter reps, half reps, momentum reps, and you gotta think to yourself: Is that really stimulating that muscle? Are you really trying to get the most out of it, or are you really just thinking about being able to say I pulled or executed this much amount of weight. And if you're telling me and come up to me and tell me that you dumbbell curl hundred pounds, one, I genuinely probably don't care. And two, <laughs> yeah. and two is good for you, dude or gal. Yeah, even when I was testing uh, dumbbell curls, like for an Instagram video, showing people how to dumbbell curl properly versus like doing it improperly. My form for the improper dumbbell curl when I was able to do like 25 pounds more was still better when I was watching the film than most people who are doing it improperly curling a lot of weight. So that's how shocking it was. It was that when I was trying to show it poorly, people are doing it much worse than that because they're they're not focusing on the contraction of the bicep. Their shoulder is being engaged. They're using momentum. They're they're not going through that full range of motion. They're doing partial reps. It's not – if your goal is to – grow and build bigger biceps which is the only reason i would really presume you're doing bicep curls then 
contract the bicep, <laughs> not anything else, you know? Mm-hmm. Here's the video of this guy. Yeah, let's see this. We're going to show it up on the podcast. Oh, we don't need to listen to it. Look at that. Imagine people trying to, like, lift in that gym and looking for the 45s. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Like, there has to be at least 20, 20 45s. He's at 2,300 pounds. What does it say? 2,300? 2,300 pounds. That's ridiculous, and he just keeps doing it. I mean, okay, so one, that's very impressive to actually... Well, the lift, it, yeah, without a doubt, it's but impressive. The raw stimulus, like, <laughs> unless he's unless he's going to be the next strong man or he's about to do, like, a... This one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if he's about to do, like, let's say, a, a strongman competition or he has to pick up a car to help his friend get the, the, the uh, <laughs> car jack underneath, there's literally no reason for you to be doing yeah. this and hogging all the weight to do a quarter inch of a range of motion. Imagine he just, like, lives on the highway and he just, like, waits for people to, like crash and like be stuck in their cars so he's like practicing to just like lift cars up yeah it's unbelievable (laughs) it's crazy uh let's get into the next one i mean i think that like at least well let me let me talk about something about bad technique here okay yeah go so go into it so the practical tip for bad technique and ego lifting is one start recording yourself make sure that you're when you do that nobody's in the video or that you're courteous enough to ask people if it's okay to record yourself because that's number one. Yeah. Uh, two being that you want to start standardizing your reps. Every rep that you do, you want it to be the best rep. I should see from rep one to the last rep of your set that they should be almost identical. The only thing that really changes is the grunt on your face or the squinting <laughs> or two, the slowing down of the rep, meaning that you are training hard enough. Anything else after that, it's probably not good. So as a coach, I make sure that all my clients do record themselves so then I can gauge if they are progressing properly because before they add sets, reps, weight, I make sure the technique is solidified so they are, one, being the least injury prone, and two is I can actually make it so that they are progressing in a, in a very safe and efficient manner. Yeah, and actually I do got something else to say about it is that when your technique is really bad, if you're trying to build a certain muscle group, one, you might not be hitting the muscle at all because you're just doing the lift completely wrong. But two, if that muscle group is developing, maybe it's developing off of like 15 to 20 sets and maybe it could get the same raw stimulus at like seven to 10 sets and you're going to be growing just as much with less fatigue because you're not incorporating all these other muscles or lifting so much more weight that's going to fatigue you so much, but lifting that weight completely improperly and hurting yourself in the process. So when it comes to employing good technique, there's plenty of other benefits to it too. Like I know people are not going to want to do it because, oh, it doesn't look as cool for some reason when actually experienced lifters know that just looks so stupid. (laughs) But like also, um, you're just going to be able to do more good sets and grow more as a result in the long run without inducing more fatigue. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, exactly. there's plenty more benefits there. All right. So number six is a very clear cut one, but it's not a surprise that it's one of the biggest problems that people have is actually inconsistency. Mm-hmm. Right. So we've talked about this a lot in regards to especially people's diet, but in this, it's more in regards to actually showing up to the gym and going to do your program. If you have a perfect program, it's six to seven days a week. I mean, most people shouldn't be training seven days a week. Let's say you have a six-day program, and it's perfect. Like a coach that's so awesome, like Chris and I, Mass really drew it up for you. And every single little thing takes your genetics into account. It's perfect. The only problem is you show up for four of those days out of the six or five of those days, and you say, oh, I'll, I'll get those workouts in next week, or I'll make up for it or something like that. And then you don't make up for it or you do and then you do too much training that week. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, it's inconsistent. That inconsistency is – and not completing those other two workouts is far worse than if you just did four workouts on a program that was programmed for you to only have four workouts. But you made sure you got everything in and hit every muscle group in those four days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd rather have the person that comes in only twice a week they are honest with themselves and they're consistent twice a week in the gym than the person that's saying that they want to do about six or seven days in the gym, but they only show up one or two anyways. Yeah. So that's a big one for this one. And another one in terms of training is when you're inconsistent, then your numbers and your technique, they're all they're all going to be off because you have to understand that all of this is a skill as well. So if you're supposed to be squatting once or twice a week and you only do it once every other or three weeks – then you're one not yeah. going to lose that you're going to lose that skill a little bit, and two is those numbers are going to be off because you're going to be a little bit deconditioned going into the lift now, and then you're not going to understand the movement pattern as well, 
on top of the weight is going to be hard for you and you're gonna be sore because you're not adapting to the way that we have programmed to yeah exactly imagine if you had obviously like if you're someone that's being smart about things you want to bring up every muscle group relatively proportionately let's say that you have a four-day program and on you miss a day or two and those two days you miss happen to be the days where you're training quads so now you're training everything but you're not training quads because you missed those days and you do that enough times and you're just not providing a stimulus to your quads and everything else is going to grow out of proportion to your quads, <laughs> right? That's pretty common is that that's kind of, it's like a sub mistake that people make is not training specifically their legs. Dude, that's so um, funny. I was at fault for that in the beginning as well. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, it, it can go for any muscle group also. Like, Hey, like I missed the day where I trained chest the most, but I trained everything else this week. And you do that week to week. That's why, like, why would you do that? Why not just, pro I mean, the way we do it as coaches is we say, how many days do you know you could definitely come no matter what? Unless someone like dies or you're in a car accident, how many days do you know you could definitely show up to the gym? And then when someone says, okay, maybe three, instead of like the six days that they try to go, then we say, okay, we're going to program for you for these three days because as long as you get to adhere to that, you're going to get the best results as opposed to being inconsistent with more days. And then we'll add in other days for like we'll sprinkle in some extra volume for other muscle groups you want to bring up if you can make it any additional days. Mm -hmm. But let's just be honest. Most people, most clients that I've had throughout the years, if I, when I programmed legs, just legs, and they knew what was going to come that day, <laughs> you 100% knew that they were going to cancel or have some sort of excuse not to show up. You have to start lying to them in the program. Yeah, so <laughs> that's why that's why as a coach, a foolproof system has been to at least start them off with full body exercises so they're not mm -hmm. coming in deathly sore, especially the legs in the beginning because you were going to be destroyed if I give you squats, hinges, or RDLs into – split squats, calf raises, you're not going to be walking for a couple of days. So in our cases, for inconsistency in training, we actually reprogrammed it to be full body workouts, just so you don't have to think yeah. about the daunting part of lifting, which is mm. a heavy leg day, a heavy yeah. pull day. Whereas you come in, you hit every body part close to failure, and you're still not deathly sore for the most part. You're probably yep. sore for about a day or two at most. But most of my clients, they definitely skip legs and it definitely shows. And now I've made a foolproof system where they cannot <laughs> miss a part of their leg exercises. Yeah. And I think on the flip side, if you're someone who really loves to train, you really want to grow, but you also only have about two days max per week to grow. There is something to be said about really pushing to your, yourself on those two days to the point where if you did that on like a four or five day program, it would definitely be considered overtraining every single week. But because you only have those two days, you're able to recover because you have the other five days of the week to recover from that sheer large amount of stimulus. So yeah. I think that there is something to say about that. If you're someone who loves to train, but because of your life circumstances at the moment, you don't have time to kind of overdo it by the standards we talked about at tip number two. But then you, because you have the time to recover, you can. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I've done that with lots of clients as well, where like that, I yeah. knew that they only had like a small amount of time. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to murder you in this workout and do like the craziest things like ever because otherwise, and I, I mean, I did learn that lesson the hard way where it was like, they did have more days <laughs> and like, I would just kill them and they like, wouldn't want to show up and like, it would yeah, deter yeah. them from coming. So like, that was a lesson hard learned, but it was a good thing I did in the beginning. Like, okay, we have to pace people. <laughs> I have one client that came in, like he was like, he missed like the whole last week or like, I think he had a wedding he was going to on like a Wednesday. And I trained with him like the Monday before. And he's like, I'm not coming on on this Wednesday because it's a week before my wedding. I was like sore with you like a week later. I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'll tone it back for you. So I learned a lesson there, but it was, uh, I think sometimes it was like, so I was like, you know what? No one shows up. I'm just going to make you do everything. Like I was so angry. <laughs> Put all the anger out on the client. Yeah. Just, all right. All the frustration. 1,000 fucking squats. <laughs> oh, my God. That'd be miserable. But Yeah, well, it's like the Tom Platt's workout. Just made my average client who never worked out before do a Tom Platt's workout, oh right? Oh, my God. Basically, at the end of this moral <laughs> story is don't skip legs. And if a, if a coach is going to kill you, probably you should turn the other way. Uh, yeah. Because you're not going to be recovering. And then it's also not enjoyable to do in the long run. So yeah, exactly. That's just a little forethought. But 100%. Yeah. As we go into number seven, uh, it's going to be bad sleep. And bad sleep has got to be one of the top things for hindering your growth. We have studies now where if you take a group that did the same exact training, 
same exact calories, like everything is on point, and they got bad sleep. So basically, like not like four less than four hours, versus the other group who did the same exact thing and got good sleep. That the group that didn't sleep well enough didn't lose fat in the same caloric deficit and in the same training protocol. And oh, yeah, yeah. there is something there is something to be said about that because understand you can do everything right and still not sleep properly and not see the results that you want. Yeah. So sleep is a very vital portion of this. People say it's is it training is it nutrition? I was like, no, it's training, nutrition, and sleep. It's all three. It's everything together, working cohesively. Like if something's not working, look at what piece of the puzzle is not in sync. Like I had one client and he was a really cool guy and he trained really hard. He's been training like most of his life. He's like, I can't grow anymore. Like I'm eating definitely enough protein. I'm definitely eating enough calories. I looked at it. He was right. And he, he was definitely training hard enough, but he was sleeping like three hours a night because of you work two jobs, like 60, 70 hours a week, maybe more. And I was like, okay, like we can work on optimizing everything a little bit more, but nothing like I was just blunt with him. Like nothing's really going to happen that improves other, unless you focus on m- having more sleep and more quality sleep as well. Like there are studies to meet what you said a little bit, not that it goes contrary to what you said, but there are some studies that show that to a certain extent, like let's say that six hours of sleep versus eight hours of sleep. That six hours will be more beneficial if it was very top quality, deep sleep, and the eight hours wasn't. But that's in that scenario. So what you said is also true. It's because sleep is is going to help you lose more fat in the long run as long as you're doing that in coordination with the other steps that we recommend for fat loss. Because it's going to improve your metabolism, getting that recovery in your body. Um, Sleeping more is also, and we'll go into a second, help you build more muscle to recover from your workouts, which is going to increase your metabolism. And also sleeping less is going to increase the hormone ghrelin in your body. It's going to release more ghrelin and that's considered the hunger hormone. So it's going to make you more hungry. It's going to make you more of a, have more of a proclivity to eat more food. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be less leptin in your body, which is kind of what is associated with decreased appetite and more ghrelin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like to think of sleep as uh, instead of it being that you, it adds on the benefit, the benefits of your progress. Think of it as you already start off at 100% and getting bad sleep is what brings it down. So don't, even, don't think of it as you get good sleep and then, oh my God, I have a great day of lifting, which, which is obviously true if you yeah. consistently do it. What I'm trying to tell you is it's you already should be at 100%. And then when you do get bad sleep, then you're bringing it down. That 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 frame mm-hmm. that framework is what sets up for you to be understand like, okay, I want to be optimizing or doing the best with my sleep hygiene so I can get the results that I want. In this case is growing or getting bigger at the gym. You're putting all the effort in to break down your muscle, to eat enough calories and eat enough protein now. And now you've got to make sure that when you're sleeping, that's when you recover, right? You only yeah. work out in the gym one hour. You're not growing in the gym. You're growing while you're recovering. <laughs> yeah, you're not growing. You're breaking down muscle in the gym. You got to understand that. You're breaking down muscle. And then you, when you are out of the gym, that is the points where you are growing. So you got to make sure you, that you are sleeping and you got to make sure that you are eating enough. Yeah, exactly. And we actually have two studies here. One of them is actually showing as long as you're consistent working out, <laughs> one of them. So basically, as long as you're consistent with your workouts, doing resistance training, there goes our light. Look, our, our light broke behind us again. It's, you know what it is? Lights, just the powerful ones that are as awesome as this one, they just take up so much battery so quick. That's all right. It's all right. Hey, we're, we just now our skin colors pop more. <laughs> yeah. But okay, so basically, if you are more consistent in the gym, so resist if you're doing resistance training in the gym, that actually has a positive effect on your sleep, on the quality of your sleep. So you're going to be able to sleep more because – your body's going to want to recover more and you're actually going to get a deeper sleep too from engaging in resistance training. So a lot of people, they want to grow more, but if you're not having that consistency there, then maybe the lack of training is actually going to affect your sleep, which just spirals back and forth to affecting your ability to grow in the gym. So with one study, it's called the effect of resistance exercise on sleep by, oh man, all these names for studies are just so hard. Anna Kovacevic, right? So so she found what we just explained essentially. Yeah, right? So not bad pronouncement. Not too bad. Um, it's because I'm a soccer fan, so I know all those names. She's probably like a Croatian or something. But it says chronic resistance exercise improves all aspects of sleep with the greatest benefit for sleep quality. So that's what they found in that systemic review. And then there was another one by Yanbo Chen. And he found that 
the relationship, or this is the name of the study, relationship between sleep and muscle strength among Chinese university students, cross-sectional study. So there was a positive association between sleep quality and muscle strength was observed in both male and female students. Moreover, men with shorter sleep duration, so less than six hours, had poor muscle strength than that of men who slept for seven to eight hours. So all this goes to prove is that they're both affecting each other. The more, if you train more, you're going to have better sleep. And if you have better sleep, you're actually going to grow more as a result of your training. Mm-hmm. So it's just like this spiral that keeps affecting each other. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a bell curve of basically it's start resistance training. And then the benefits only go up like crazy. And then it only gets to a certain point where the peak is like to the point where you're overreaching and overdoing it where your sleep drops off, which is what we call overreaching yeah, and exactly. overtraining. But just understand if you're the average person just trying to go to the gym and try to be as healthy as possible, then and to grow muscle, then doing the minimum amount to the effective amount of work or training will get you to have better sleep. And then therefore with better sleep, better yeah. recovery, better recovery, better decisions, all that fun yeah. stuff. So sleep funnels perfectly into our next one. And that and that's why I didn't mention it yet. You guys are probably thinking, why didn't you talk about stress yet in relation to sleep? And that's because it's its whole other category, but they rate relate directly to each other. So that is poor stress management as a reason why people um, aren't able to grow in the gym. So for one thing, to continue off of sleep a little bit, having better sleep will improve your body's ability to respond to stress. It can mitigate stress. The flip side, that's kind of where it comes to that bell curve again. This is like a never-ending cycle as well, whereas bat, like poor stress management, so everything that's not related to sleep as that relates to stress management negatively affects sleep. Mm-hmm. So good sleep positively affects stress, but stress negatively affects sleep, and it just keeps going like that. Yeah. So you need to focus on all of the things not relating to stress that you could positively make your sleep better, and all of the things related to um, stress not having to do with sleep that you can make stress better. I think yes. I said that right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. did, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just a <laughs> It's very confusing. Process. It's very hard to say it's that. It's a positive feedback loop. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to break that loop is basically what he's saying. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There you go. Make it, you made it easier. But okay, so... With stress management, there are certain things that we'd recommend. So obviously, like one would be focusing on having better sleep. But apart from the sleep part, it's going to be training. So training in the gym, resistance training is going to be a natural stress reliever. So there's lots of people. Like I met this one guy. His name was Christian at the gym. He's a really cool guy. And he's like, gym is my therapy. Like I have to come here every day because I got demons in the closet and I come here. And I break it down every single day. And like, but that's like, technically that's what the, that's what a lot of people go there for. You know, I was like, yeah, that guy's, he's absolutely right. Like anytime someone's pissing me off or I'm stressed out, I'm angry at someone, the, the gym is like the happy place. It's funny because it's like so intense and whatnot, but it's like the equivalent of someone punching a pillow being angry, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Even myself, I think of it as, uh, I think for me as uh, meditation in the gym and to understand that it's. I am so focused on my breathing, my technique, uh, what's what I'm feeling inside my own body that all of that in consideration is tough to do when you have other other stimulus in the body. So even when you're trying to meditate, which is also one of the best things. Yeah, that's like meditating, what you just said. It is like meditating. It's basically you're trying to be in the moment, right? You're trying to understand that nothing else is around you, that you are within what you are feeling, what is going around you at that given time. And when you're exercising, especially like now I'm doing those 10 years, when I'm in that moment, when I'm trying to do that squat, I am not thinking about, oh, the person behind me who's barbell curling 100 pounds incorrectly or the person that's half naked walking around the gym or <laughs> my mom and dad that's pissed at me for doing something stupid, right? I don't care what it is. I'm not thinking about any of that stuff. I'm thinking about, okay, I got this heavy-ass barbell on my back. Yeah. I got to sit down and stand up. And if I don't make it, I'm going to make a fool out of myself or I'm going to get injured. So guess what? Yeah. This thing's coming up. <laughs> I think you're better at that than me. That's like, I feel like that's my biggest problem is like looking around too much. Like I, I've been focusing more on not being affected by external factors and not even like I, I have an issue here. As you guys can probably tell, I talk more than Chris and I talk to too many people. So I'm like, I always look around at the gym and I like have conversations with random people that I initiate. I'm trying to avoid that now. So I, I'm trying to be more of like the guy with the hoodie that comes in with his beats and like doesn't talk to anyone. It's very hard for me, but I'm just trying to not look around as much and get in and out. Even though I love the gym and I could spend hours in there, I need to optimize my day. So also if I'm in there and I'm just on my phone for a long time in between sets or looking around being distracted, I'm not actually having the best workout because 
if I let's say like I'm in between sets of doing lap pull downs and I'm talking to someone, it takes a long time. I'm totally out of the mentality now to do the best set and connect with my muscle in the best way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it breaks down to the next one in this is, which is meditation and with meditation becomes focus. And what we talk about and help with our clients is doing breathing exercises. Yeah. With the, with these breathing exercises, we teach them to breathe diaphragmatically big word. It's just a muscle in your stomach that helps you expand and exhale. So for people that are watching this video, when I inhale, the whole goal is not to breathe up into your lungs and expand your chest. (gasps) Yeah. And go up and I'm sorry if you don't like that sound. (laughs) Yeah. It's just ear raping people. Yeah. yeah. Just absolutely ear raping people. (laughs) What I want you to focus on is inhaling through your stomach, expanding your stomach as much as you can, almost as if it's a Thanksgiving belly after you've eaten and then exhale. It, for a lot of you, it might be counterintuitive that you might be breathing in through your chest and then exhaling also through the, the long yeah. cavity. You're right? creating your own weight belt. So you're not just expanding out through your stomach. You're actually expanding out through the sides and all the way around 360 degrees. That's where it gets even more difficult. Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to learn how to do that, a great way is just lay on the floor or lay on a mat and then try to, on the inhale, push your belly away from the floor. Your body will rise off the floor a little bit and then back down. And that is a good thing to practice. Yeah. With that said, in meditation, we tell people just to be still, just to make sure that you're able to focus in the moment. And how we do that is just focus on your breathing. Can you just sit there by yourself for about five minutes? We start five minute mark and see if you're able to just hone in on your breathing. Nothing else in the world is happening. Hone in on just the inhale of the breath and the exhale and see how long it takes you to think about something else, whether it be you just got a, a, a parking ticket the other day. Or your significant other was yelling at you about a habit that she doesn't like or he doesn't like. Or whether it be, oh, I have to get this done before my boss gets mad at me. No, no, no. There's nothing else in the world. Just you, yourself, and your breathing. Yeah, because if you're focused on any of those other things, then you're not breathing properly. So that's the whole goal is like you're focusing on something that's goal-oriented, which is to breathe properly so that you forget about everything else. And there's like so many different types of meditative breathing. And like I'm not even close to an expert on all the different ones. Like there's one I really like. But it's, it is different from what we're saying, but it does help calm me at the end of things, not like during the actual breathing itself, apart from the fact that I'm not thinking about anything because I'm thinking about breathing properly is I love the Wim Hof method of breathing. So they call him the Iceman. It's the guy that like basically climbed like Mount Everest in like his underwear or something like yep. he's nuts. And um, it's basically forced hyperventilation. Don't do this like in water, guys, because you could drown. Um, But like forced hyperventilation and then it actually... At the end, you hold your breath and it allows you to hold your breath for such a long period of time. And then you just do this exhale and it's just, very, it's very oddly and it seems almost counterintuitive, but it's very soothing for me. Like it, it, that's worked really well for me. Yeah. So, um, that's one. And then I just, I know very briefly that Huberman talks about the quickest way to just calm yourself from, I guess, I mean, obviously it's in relates to breathing, but from a neuroscience perspective is just. Doing a dio diagraph diam- diaphragmatic di- di- that's a hard word to say, um, but doing those types of breaths through your stomach, but two quicker inhales, so like, and then a longer exhale out, and then that's kind of like us not ne- like that's a progression kind of from what we were talking about with mm-hmm. the diagram. Why can't I say it now? Diaphragmatic, diaphragmatic, <laughs> diaphragmatic breathing. So another way to mitigate stress is actually cold exposure or cold therapy. So I know we talked about this a little bit a few episodes ago. I don't remember which one. I think we were talking about dopamine a little bit, but um, it's if you're taking up to about 11 minutes worth of cold showers or submerging yourself in cold for about 11 minutes total to an uncomfortable point per week. So that might be, um, one to two minutes a day or five days a week, a few minutes each time, then that's going to actually act as a natural stress reliever. So I don't know the complete science behind this. Like I'm not an expert in this whatsoever, but it does. I mean, I don't, like I said, I don't stress that much, but I've fully enjoyed the benefits of cold exposure. And I think one of the other positive things about it is that it just forces you to do something uncomfortable. And then you realize after that it wasn't that bad. I mean, do, do you do anything like with cold whatsoever or? I, I, I play with it more when I was, uh, especially still in athletics. Yeah. Currently it's. Anti-inflammatory benefits. Yeah. Yeah. Currently it's, it's hard for me to basically find a place that has it and mm. then also not cost an exorbitant amount of money. Uh, when I was True. when I was more in college, we did that for anti-inflammatory purposes, but that was because it was 
that we had games every week. We had practices. We had two-day workouts. There's a lot of stress going on in the body. In terms of this, uh, most people are so afraid of the cold weather, especially in the Northeast. And we always we always bitch about it. Like one of the biggest things that we say is, oh, it's so cold. I want to move down south. And to a certain extent, yeah, like it, it definitely is going to cause I do ache. want to move down south. How'd you know? <laughs> I mean, yes, if it's cold, you might have some joint aches and it's uncomfortable. But here's the thing. Your body will adapt. And what I tell people is get used to that cold. Your body wants to adapt. It will adapt to it. And eventually, you it will be not that much of a stress to you anymore. And in this case, is they're talking about cold plunges, cold baths, cold yeah. showers. And that will get into more of the hormones and understand that once you put that stress in the body, then the body will respond a certain way where it the dopamine hits and now you're able to take on other challenges. Yeah, you're more inclined to pursue goals and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. And then there are other podcasters and great resources on that. But understand that this cold water exposure is, main, is mainly for just getting adapting to that. Mm-hmm. And then your body will also heat up heat up to compensate for that. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Like, I know we talked about this before when we were walking in the cold to the gym that one time and you're like, your body, like there's research that's come out, like it adapts to just like any other stimulus or stress or it adapts to the cold to the point where if it's freezing outside, but you've adapted to that point, like it's not, not that it's not going to feel like it's freezing for you, but you're going to be more comfortable there and you're, you're not necessarily going to get sick, right? So as people get older and of course age, it plays a role, but they're like, oh, I can't do the cold anymore. They're probably exposing themselves significantly less to the cold as well. And I think it's it goes good. by body part too, because like with me yeah. with with soccer, I was always in shorts, but everything else like full Under Armour and like fully covered. So it was always my legs that didn't get cold at all, and it was like other parts. Like I I could have like like basically be wearing underwear, and my legs wouldn't get feel cold, but yeah. my upper body would. So it's very interesting how that works. Yeah, it's whatever you adapt to. One of the best points for stress management is that you want to eliminate as many stress factors as possible. And yes, that is easier said than done. So what we do is. We tell our clients to attack them head on with as much reason and logic as possible. So a lot of the time, our clients will think to themselves that this problem is not solvable, whatever it may be, when realistically, it is solvable, but you're just not willing to confront it head on. So it could be as simple as having that talk with your boss that they're not having that boundary that they want you to work overtime and you're not going to get paid more. And in that case, it's just as simply as, look, tell them that this is not in my job description, that I should be either paid more for this time and that I want to have a healthy life-work balance, right? So something that you want to attack straight on. These are things that you can control. So take everything that you can control in terms of your stresses and your problems and try to attack them head on with as much reason, as much logic. And to do so, I would say is write it down. And once you write down your actual problems, you can actually start solving them logically. And from there attack it head on so you can eliminate those and stop putting it in the back of your head yeah it's not to say that you guys like it's unrealistic to say you shouldn't stress at all and this can completely eliminate all stressors there's and we didn't go into it deeply but there's a huge genetic component to stress obviously everyone's life circumstances are going to be different but still you are in control of how you respond to external factors and influences so like let's say you had the worst day ever there are certain people who could be zen in the face of all of the adversity that could possibly exist. You could have that, you could have five parking tickets. You could have like, uh, you could get like hit by a car, but like not too hurt about it. Like, you know what I mean? Like you get like every little thing could happen and like you could still maintain peace internally because at the end of the day, you get to choose how to respond to those external factors. There was this one video I was watching. I think, have you ever seen the YouTube channel? It's called like After School, like SKO. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He was, there was this one guy who had this philosophy. It was pretty interesting. Like, I'm not saying like I fully agree or disagree. Like, I haven't thought about it that much, but he was like, life is meaningless. So only focus on the thing that does matter, which is human relationships. Don't focus on the other bullshit that happens and stress about it because it doesn't matter anyways. He was like, it doesn't matter. So why, why focus on it? It's like, oh, well, like, there's a point to that. It's like, at least at the bare minimum, those things don't matter in the grand scheme of what does matter in life. So if you're thinking about it more, I feel like sometimes you can hack your brain to think about things philosophically that way. I mean, at at least that's what works for me is that the reason I've always asked people what is stress because I barely ever stress about anything. And when I do, it's just like gone like that. But I think that a lot of um, the reason why I don't stress that much is because I think about it in that way. Every time that something that would stress me happens, I say, 
okay, like, do I really care about this person? Does this really bother me? Like, is this matter in the grand scheme of what my goals are? And like 99% of the time, it's like, no. So why do I care? Yeah. Just figure out what you can control. Write down, write down the problems that you currently have. Figure out solutions for those problems and then try to attack them head on while being as respectful and as courteous as possible. Yeah, you can only control the controllable. You cannot control the uncontrollable. Yeah, it's just how you respond. Yep. Before we close down, everyone go visit www.thegenerationfit.com. Tons of free resources, guides, you name it, we've got it there. Lots of articles as well. If you want to do any of our training programs or packages working with Chris and I one-on-one, you get 10% off if you're a podcast listener. So all you have to do is let us know and we'll be happy to give you that discount. Have a good one, guys. I'm going.